summer series for those of you who weren't around when I announced it a couple weeks ago. Actually, last week we started a summer series jumping out of Romans and going through the seven letters to the churches of Revelation just so we can look at what Christ had to say to his church um, in Asia Minor and, and hopefully apply it to ourselves. And we'll jump back into Romans in the fall. Actually, well, it's not really the fall when it's the end of August, is it? That's, that's technically still the summer, isn't it? We call it the fall, I guess, because school's starting, huh? But it's not really the fall. So we're just jumping back into Romans then. But right now we're going through these churches. So if you would turn to Revelation chapter 2, we'll start in verse 1. Revelation 2, starting verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning as we listen to and look at and study and try to understand the letter that you were pleased to pen through the hand of John to the church of Ephesus. Lord, I, as we look at that, I pray that we would heed the warning that your son gives here. Lord, that we would understand in what ways we, um, or in some of us entirely, we've forgotten our first love. Lord, I pray that we would understand what it is that you rejoice in in this church, what it is that you condemn in this church. And Lord, I pray that we would understand how these letters really still apply to your church today. How you so superintended them by the work of your spirit, Lord, that um, they have universal applicability throughout um, history. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to attempt to give you a summary of the various kinds of churches that are found on the West Coast. Are you ready? I'm going to ask you what you think, how I've done. First, we have churches that are large, wealthy, and powerful. These churches pursue prosperity and well-being. They trust in their power and riches, though, rather than the Lord oftentimes, and they're spiritually lukewarm. We have churches that strive for cultural acceptance and relevance. They're often growing. Many good things are happening. However, they tend to tolerate massive sin within their midst. They do not participate in church discipline. And in an attempt to be accepted and to attract the masses, they often sell out important doctrines. 
or tolerate a lot of immorality. Third, we have some churches that are small and marginalized, but are faithful. They're not popular. Their pastors will never be asked to speak at a church growth conference. They often experience an inordinate amount of suffering and are disparaged by others. Fourth, we have some churches that are all style and no substance. These churches have great reputations in the community. They're the hip place to be. They have all the programs people want. Yet underneath, there's no real spiritual life. It's just some sort of religious entertainment and pretense. Fifth, we have some churches that are doctrinally sound. They stand for the truth in in the face of much opposition. They do not tolerate sin. They practice church discipline and speak out against false doctrine. They're rigorous students of systematic theology. Yet they lack missionary and evangelistic zeal. They do not seem to love people. They seem to lack a real passion for Jesus. Some people would say they're all head and no heart. What do you think? Think that sums it up? Am I missing some? Probably, but you probably think I'm talking about the West Coast of America in the 21st century, don't you? But really what I'm talking about is the West Coast of Asia Minor in the first century. Because that's a summary of the churches, of the letters that Christ writes to the churches of Revelation in Asia Minor. I was talking about those seven churches that we're reading about here. At the same time, I want you to understand that these letters are so obviously applicable to our own circumstances, and that's because God intended them to be. The majority of the strengths and weaknesses you see in these seven churches, you're going to see in churches in America, aren't you? You will see some of these in yourself as an individual as well. The reason for this is these letters are written to the whole church of every time. That's why. They're written to the whole church of every time. There are seven letters. Why? Last week we talked about why there are seven churches that, whose letters these letters are written to. Seven letters because seven is the biblical number of completeness taken all the way from where? The account of creation. Okay? Completeness. This idea that this is going comprehensively to the whole church. All of these churches are on a circular postal route, meaning that this letter is taken to all these letters, all of them are taken to all seven churches and read in all seven churches. And not only that, but in every letter, there's an instruction. And look at the end of, of two verse uh, seven, or the, actually the beginning of verse seven there. He says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the what churches, not to the church. And that said every, in every single one of these letters, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's in the plural because every one of these letters is to be read and heard by and heeded by every one of these churches. And not only every one of these churches, but it's to be read and heard by and heeded by our church and all the churches throughout the history of the church. The fact is that some of these letters are great descriptors of churches as a whole, aren't they? There are some churches that these letters may describe 
I mean, just you could just pick a church and you could apply a letter to it. In some cases, you can do that. And in some cases, you may not be able to do that, but they certainly are good descriptors of individuals within those churches. Right? I'm certain we have people here in this church who are zealous for truth, but often lack a real passionate love for Christ. I'm also sure we have people who trust in their wealth, but are lukewarm spiritually right here in this church. We have people who are all style and no substance. It's just religious pretense. We have people trying to hold on to Jesus and yet tolerating all sorts of sin in their lives. I'm sure that's true here. Now, I haven't sat down and tried to analyze who among you is that. Don't worry, in case you're concerned. (laughs) But the question becomes, which of these letters best describes the spirit or tenor of this church? Which of these letters best describes the spirit or tenor of this church? I mean, this is something I had to sit down and think about as a pastor. Read these letters, understand them, and say, which one of these best describes the spirit or tenor of our church? Or at least, which one best describes where our church could possibly go if we don't heed these warnings? What, we, what is our tendency? What are we most likely to take on of the characteristics of these churches? And I gave this a lot of thought. And I think if I had to put them in order... I would say we have all the right things in place to become like the church of Ephesus. I think this first letter, I'm glad I'm preaching it because I think this first letter to the church of Ephesus is the church that we probably could become most like. Second, I think we could probably become most like Laodicea. Now, why does that scare me? That scares me because of the seven letters, those are the only two churches or the only two letters in which God threatens or Christ threatens to remove that church or to bring an end to it. I'm not saying we're like either of these churches yet. I am saying that if we don't heed the warnings in here and are not diligent about continual repentance, we could become like one of these two churches. Why these two? Why do I pick... Ephesus and Laodicea. I do because often churches take on the strengths and weaknesses of their pastor. And so what I'm going to do is tell you a little personal confession. If there were two churches I had to pick in these letters that most approximate my own life and my own tendencies, it's Ephesus first and Laodicea second. Like those at Laodicea, I really like money. I love it. I'll be honest with you. I can often trust in it rather than the Lord. I never really have enough. The very fact that I'm ever dissatisfied with what I have in such a opulent and rich culture shows clearly enough my absolute infatuation with the material wealth of this world. And I'll tell you, if you're ever dissatisfied with what you have in this rich and opulent culture, you're in love with money too. Like Laodicea, I also like being more powerful than others. And I like being powerful more than I like being humble. 
I love being known and talked about more than I want Jesus to be known. It's often the case for me. But if I'm zealous and passionate for Jesus, all of that has to go by the wayside, doesn't it? And I don't want it to. So why not just settle for mediocrity or balance? You know, I could give a whole sermon on why balance needs to be removed as a word from the Christian world. It's a word taken from Eastern mysticism. There's one passage in the Bible on balance. Do you want to know where it's found? Revelation chapter 3, the letter to the church at Laodicea. Jesus calls it being lukewarm. But in spite of all this sin, that's really not my dirty little secret. It really isn't. I'm more wicked than that. Because more than anything else, like Ephesus, I often lack a passion for Jesus. I certainly love good doctrine. I mean, I don't want you to get me wrong. I love good doctrine. I'll battle for the truth in the face of all sorts of persecution and suffering. I will. I will go to war, and I don't care who hates me because of it or what they do to me for it. But my passion for Jesus will wax and wane. I'll put it to you like this. I love the truth of the Lord, but I don't always love the Lord of truth. I can be all head and no heart. I read endless books about God and know all about God. And sometimes I'm not sure I really know him. And when my love for God wanes, I still stand fast for the truth. I mean, don't get me wrong. You're never going to see me stop doing that. But I don't do it out of a deep, passionate love for Jesus. I don't fight for orthodoxy because I love the God of orthodoxy. I don't do it out of a desire to see his name proclaimed all the time. I don't do it out of a love for others. I do it because in some sick way it satisfies my flesh. Hear that? Because in some sick way it satisfies my flesh. I do it because I like being right more than I love the one who is righteous. I do it because I love to defeat other people and their dumb arguments. Honestly. I love being known as brighter than other people, and I love beating them down with my intellect. I love it. That's where my flesh is. I'm not going to lie to you. Doctrinal precision, absent the motivation of love for Jesus and others, may be my favorite vice. It may be the manner in which my vanity takes this greatest and most horrific expression. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'm always like this. I'm saying I can be this way. I'm saying that apart from continual repentance and returning to a deep, abiding, passionate love for Jesus, I could lead this church down the Ephesian path. Do you hear me? That's why this letter, I think, is so appropriate to us. So today I want to look at the letter to the church of Ephesus. And as I do, I want to deal with it in seven parts. 
Okay, what seven parts, Chad? Good night. Come on, that's going to take all day, and it may. I'm hoping not. And I'm going to give you seven C's since I never get to alliterate. This one just kind of came out naturally. Although I'll be honest, the seventh C was a little stretch. I had to look it up in the thesaurus, so I'm feeling kind of bad about it. But I didn't want to. I, I had six in a row. I didn't want to break the string. Um, I, here's what I want to identify. I want to identify first the church that this letter is written to. First, the church that this letter is written to. Second, I want to identify the characteristics of the author. So who's the church this letter is written to? What are the characteristics of the author of this letter? Third, what's the commendation, the commendation that's given to this church? Fourth, what's the condemnation pronounced on this church? Fifth, what's the command given to the church? Six, what's the consequence of unrepentance? And don't worry, I'm going to go through these again. And seven, what's the commitment made to those who are overcome? Really promises a better word there, I realize, but commitment works. Okay, so what's the commitment made to those who overcome? First, let's look at the church to whom the letter's written. Let's look at the church to whom the letter's written. He says this right at the get-go. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. As with all the letters, John is first told to write to the angel of the church. Who's the angel of the church? Well, there's two options that are usually talked about by scholars. The first option is that the angel is some spiritual guardian like a, you know, you guys have heard of this kind of concept, right? Like you have your guardian angel, but some kind of territorial or guardian angel for a specific church. And the reason they argue for that is because throughout Revelation, every time the word angel, angelos in the Greek, every time it's used, it refers to a specific angel or angelic being. And so they're saying, well, in this case, it must be referring to angelic beings also. Also, because of the way Daniel, whom John borrows heavily from in Revelation, there are times in which angels come and communicate with Daniel. And so that's why they make that argument. The second argument is that the word angelos can also just as appropriately be translated messenger. And therefore, the messenger of the church, they would say, is the pastor or the primary teacher. Those are the two options. Let me tell you why I have a problem with the first option. I have a problem with the first option because it seems awfully odd to me that Jesus would come to John and say, John, I want you to write a letter. And when you're done writing it, I want you to give it to an angel. I'm not exactly certain how that's done. And Daniel, it's the reverse. The angels bring the message to Daniel. In this case, it seems odd to me that John would bring the message to the angel and the angel would somehow bring it to the church. So that's odd to me. On the flip side, because the word angelos is never used by John in Revelation, other than maybe this place, to refer to a pastor or a specific messenger, I struggle with that option also. So then where do I land? I don't. Ready? This is not something I'm going to land on. Okay, I'm going to leave you with some tension. I'll tell you where I land ultimately. John was supposed to write these letters for the church and not just for one being in particular, but these letters were to be delivered to every person in the church. In other words, they were to come together corporately in Ephesus. Now, probably in house churches at different times, because the city of Ephesus was uh, the Christian church in Ephesus was probably too large to meet in one place. They probably met in multiple house churches. They were to come together 
and they were to have this letter read to them. Only nine, you know, about only 5% of the population could read or was literate. So they're going to have these letters read to them. Okay. That's what I think happened. The reason I say that is because every time the second, <laughs> it's the second person um, pronoun is used. You know what the second person pronoun is? First person's like I, right? Person pronoun. Second person is you. Third person's he, she, right? Every time the second person pronoun is used, I know your, Jesus says to the church, I know your works. Every time he says that, it's in the plural. Give this to a singular messenger or angel, but when Jesus is speaking to the church, it's I know your or y'all's, right? I know y'all's works. He's speaking to everybody in the church not just to the pastor of the church. So I I want it to be clear that this letter is for the whole church. So what do we know about this church that might help us understand it? What do we know about it? First, we know that Ephesus was a thriving metropolis. In fact, commercially, it was the largest city in the Asian province of the Roman Empire. It was the largest commercial city in the Asian province of the Roman Empire. The Roman highways went through the city. They had a seaport, which means the city was accessible by land or sea. And therefore, it became the prominent commercial center in Asia. It was also a free Roman city, which means that Rome didn't have to station any soldiers there because Ephesus was loyal to Rome. The chief draw of the city was its Olympic Games or athletic games, I should say. Major athletic games there. And you know what else was a huge draw? Their temple. They had a temple to the goddess Diana, if you are talking Latin, or Artemis, if you're talking about it from the Greek. The temple to that goddess. The temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It actually was the size of two football stadiums. Okay? As far as its width and length. And it towered over the city. The people of Ephesus were deeply committed to the worship of Artemis, deeply committed to her. They considered her image one of the most sacred images. And they had a huge statue of her. And it was grotesque. Here's what it looked like. It was squat, black, and many-breasted. And it was reputed to have fallen from heaven. The citizens were fanatically devoted to her. They'd gather at the temple to participate in widespread sexual immorality. Prostitution was alive and well, and the prostitutes in the temple were considered the priestesses. The city was filled with people from diverse backgrounds throughout Asia Minor and the Roman Empire. You might say Ephesus was kind of a was kind of like a pluralistic metropolitan city of today, reveling in their immorality. Into this setting came the Apostle Paul. He came to Ephesus on his second missionary journey. And when he came, he left Priscilla, or Prisca, more precisely, and Aquila there to minister in Ephesus. And Apollos also came there to preach the gospel. Paul came back to Ephesus on his third missionary journey and actually lived there for three years, teaching and preaching He ended up leaving Ephesus after a great uproar occurred. And why did it occur? Because the silversmiths were making money. There were silversmiths. This was one of the main trades in the area. They were making money by creating these little idols and selling them to people. 
But what happened was Paul's ministry grew in influence so much that people started saying, hey, those idols are no gods at all. Nobody should worship them. Toss them out. And so the silversmiths saw their business dropping like crazy. And they got extremely frustrated. And therefore they, the silversmiths con- convened the first silversmith, smith, smith, that's an easy word to say, huh? silversmith union. Actually did. Silversmith union meeting. Got together. They were a bit more aggressive than contemporary unions. I'm sure the Apostle Paul and other Christians would have been thankful had they just stood outside with shame on the first church of Ephesus signs, (laughs) right? As opposed to what they did, which was massive persecution. And they continued in a violent reaction against the Christians. You can read about this, by the way, all in Acts 19 primarily. Paul later wrote that he knew some men would come preaching to them a false gospel. That's what he told the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. Some men are going to come to you, wrote to the elders, and preach a false gospel. In fact, he said, some are going to rise up within your own church and preach a false gospel. And he knew that they would face pressure to compromise in their doctrine in the midst of such a pluralistic and immoral city. He knew that. And so he prepared them for it. He trained them to be good about their doctrine. He eventually even sent Timothy to Ephesus. And he sent Timothy there. Why? Because a couple of their elders had indeed gone heretical. So Timothy went there to clean up the mess and to train and appoint new men to stand there and lead. And Paul really poured out blood, blood, sweat, and tears to make this a church that would be doctrinally sound and rigorous, that would stand for the truth in face of persecution and suffering, that would fight for right doctrine no matter what, because he knew it would be difficult to persevere in the face of that kind of pressure. Later, John the Apostle moved to Ephesus and lived there several years before he was thrown out of the really kind of by the Roman Empire, thrown off of the mainland and stuck on an island called Patmos, which we read about last week. And he was put there because it was a Roman penal colony island. And he was put there because he talked about the gospel too much and it was causing a disturbance. This is the church to whom Jesus is writing this letter. This is their situation. So what are the characteristics of the author? Look at the second part of verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, and he says this, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you remember last week, I told you that the characteristics of Jesus given in the first chapter would be then applied to each of the different churches. In other words, what would happen was John saw this incredible, marvelous, glorious vision of Christ. He saw it and he detailed it out. And what we see is that in almost every one of these letters begins with a part of that description. And the part of that description that's referred to is the part of that description that is most relevant to the situation of that church. Why does he do this? Because God knew if they saw the glory of Jesus, they'd be changed. 
Nothing sanctifies us like seeing Christ in all his glory. Nothing. This is why so much preaching that focuses on tips for Christian living, but that does not point us constantly to the gospel of the glory of Christ comes across as so empty and powerless. Doesn't it? In each letter, Jesus gives the picture of himself most necessary appropriate for that church. In this case, Christ describes himself as what? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Who are those? Who's that? Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. So just look right up above verse 1 there, verse 20 of chapter 1. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what Christ says is what? I am the one who is walking among the churches. I'm among you. I'm here. I'm caring for you. And I have the angels of those churches in my right hand, which means I have sovereign authority and control and power over your church. I'm holding on to you and I'm in your midst. What did Jesus say to the church of Ephesus? Church of Ephesus, I'm here. I'm among you. And I'm holding on to you. I have authority over you. You know what he says? Sovereign Grace Church. I'm here. I'm among you. And I have authority over you. He is the head of our church. When we get to the consequences of not repenting, when we get to that section, I'm going to deal more with this description. But for now, I want you to focus on the fact that Jesus is telling the Ephesian church and all churches that he's among them, tending to their needs, sanctifying them, holding on to them, and that he has authority over them. So we'll return to that in a minute, but let's look at the commendation Jesus gives the church. Verse 2 starts off with this. I'll read verse 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. Look down at verse six. He gives another commendation. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus starts verse 2 by saying, I know your works. There are two Greek words for this word know. Okay? It can either be a Greek word called gnosko, which means I know in a progressive sort of way. I'm growing in my knowledge. Or it can be a Greek word oida, which means I have a perfect picture of everything. I have a complete and full knowledge of everything. Oida is the word that is used here. In other words, what Jesus is saying to them is that I have an absolute clearness of mental vision of your church. I know everything about you. I know your works, all of them. There's nothing that escapes my vision. He has a perfect picture of their works. And what does he see? He says, I see your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are 
and are not, and have found them to be false. That's what he tells them. In other words, they've worked hard and endured through the difficult task of testing teachers and finding them to be false. They've been intolerant. Imagine that. Jesus says, I commend you for your intolerance. Boy, that's a word we need to be hearing in America today, isn't it? I commend you for your intolerance. Their intolerance for false teachers and evildoers really is pretty refreshing. In fact, he goes on in Revelation 2, 3 to say this, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. In other words, while you've done this wearying work, this exhausting work of standing for the gospel, of standing for the truth in the face of all this opposition, while you've done this very difficult work, you haven't grown weary doing it in spite of the fact it's a wearying work. This is an incredible, incredible commendation. He goes on in verse 2, 6 and says, I commend you because you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. You hate their works. That's another commendation. We don't often hear or think about God commending the church because they're intolerant and hate something. Do we? But he said the Nicolaitans were a group, really, that were committed to bringing sexual immorality and idolatry into the church, and they did it through the guise of Christian freedom. So Jesus commends the Ephesian church for hating their works. Look, we're never supposed to tolerate evil. Never. We're never supposed to tolerate false teaching. We're supposed to hate it. Why? Because it rails against the holiness of our king. And he hates it. So we're supposed to. The Ephesian church is one that stood up in the face of perverted doctrine and dealt with it seriously. I mean, they were the doctrinal studs of the first century. They knew their Bible. They knew their systematic theology. They dealt seriously with sin and false teaching in their midst. They stood and fought for the gospel in the midst of a culture that was far more degraded than our own. I mean, that's an incredible commendation, isn't it? Could you imagine if Jesus came to us and said, Sovereign Grace, I know your works. In spite of all the persecution and suffering that you face, you continue to stand for the truth of the gospel. You fight for it and you don't tolerate any evil. And I commend you for that. How would you feel about that? We'd be pretty excited, wouldn't we? Jesus saying that to us, wouldn't we? And rightly so. That's a great commendation. I don't want you to forget that when we get to the condemnation. Jesus is not saying that this is a bad thing. Jesus is saying that this is a great thing about this church. That's what makes the condemnation seem so strange. Because what could Jesus possibly condemn a church like this for? I mean, that sounds like the church most of us would like to have. What could he possibly condemn them for? Look at verse 4. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. What does this mean? It's talking about. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2, if you could. Jeremiah chapter 2. 
If you don't know, that comes in the major prophets after Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, Jeremiah is a prophet who receives a word from the Lord. And he's going to give a word from the Lord to Israel. So he speaks on behalf of, Israel, or of the Lord here. And it says this in, in verse 1 of Jeremiah 2. The word of the Lord came to me saying, you ready? Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Okay, so this is where he's going to go. Go to the church and say the, this. Thus says the Lord. Now listen to this. Because this, I think, is such a powerful passage. I remember, here's the Lord talking to Jerusalem. Here he is. I remember the devotion of your youth. I remember that. I remember your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness. In a land not sown. Hear that? I remember when you were devoted to me. And you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. In other words, you were reckless about your love for me. You went out from safety and from responsibility and from what you knew. And you followed me out into a wilderness that you knew nothing about. You just wanted to follow me because you were so devoted to me. I remember that. And look what the Lord goes on and says. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness? Can you imagine? God's pleading with his people. I remember when you loved me like a bride and you pursued me into the wilderness. What did you find wrong with me that you stopped doing that? I mean, why aren't you satisfied with me anymore? What happened? So he asked them. You used to be reckless. You used to pursue me. What happened? They once had a warm, passionate, reckless, irresponsible love for God. They would chase him off into a wilderness they didn't know. What happened to that? What did you find wrong with me? He's saying the same thing to the church at Ephesus in Revelation. Jesus is like, you used to be passionate about me. You used to be able to pursue me anywhere I called you. What happened to that? Now you're just doing your duty. They used to passionately love the Lord of truth, but now they're only interested in the truth about the Lord. They used to be Christians who were characterized by both head and heart, and now they were just all head and no heart. They were not passionately, recklessly in love with Jesus anymore. They loved fighting for the truth, but they did not love the one for whom they did it. They knew all about Jesus, but they didn't really know him anymore. They were no longer loving Christ, no longer declaring Christ to the world, and no longer loving those around them. 
They'd fallen from their first love. All these really came together. Why? Because if you love Jesus, you're going to tell everybody about him, aren't you? You'll tell others. He commands these things. And he says that if you love him, you'll do it. That's just a characteristic of someone who's passionately in love with me. Jesus says, characteristic of someone who's passionately in love with me is someone who does what I command. And what do I command? I command you to love other people. And I command you to proclaim my name to other people. I don't have to come behind you and continue to push you to do that. If you love me, that's just what you do. That's what John's saying or Jesus is saying in John. That's a characteristic of you. Why does he say that? Why is it true that those who love Jesus will declare him to the world and love those around them? Why are those things true? I want to use the imagery of the bride that Jeremiah uses. I want to use that imagery. How many of you remember when you first fell in love with your current spouse, hopefully? (laughs) Remember when you first fell in love and if you're not married, that first love you had. How many of you guys remember that? Do you remember how passionate, irresponsible, and reckless you were? Do you remember that? Remember that, that feeling that you would, you know, like Jacob did for Rachel in Genesis? Man, I could work seven years for her and it would feel like a day. I, I, you know, you would serve them and it would never seem burdensome. I remember in college, Teresa left her purse at her parents' house, right? Her parents' house is in Exeter. She probably doesn't even remember this. But her parents' house is in Exeter. It's about an hour and 15 minutes away from where we were in Fresno. And she left her purse there. And about 11 o'clock at night, she discovered it. And she needed it the next day. She was student teaching. And she said, I need to get my purse. And so I was like, great, I'll go get it. And I drove to Exeter and got it. I didn't even think a thing about it. It never bothered me a bit. I was happy to do it. Now, sometimes I'm in bed and she asks me to get up and go get something from the other room. And I'm like, dang, man, I don't want to do that. I'm tired. You're wearing me out, woman. How pathetic. How pathetic is that? Yet we do the same thing with Jesus, don't we? We serve and wonder why we're not getting more notice and thanks than we are. We don't just do it because we're passionate about Jesus. That's what we used to do. I also remember I'd stay up late at night, far later than I was ever responsible, just to hear Teresa talk about things, just to talk with her and hear what she had to say. I didn't care. It could be 2 o'clock in the morning. I just wanted to hear everything that she had to tell me. It didn't matter if I was getting up at six the next day. I was happy to do it. Now I get in bed at night and she rolls over and starts wanting to talk. And I'm like, you know, I got to get up early. What's this? I have a job. I don't have time for this. I've got responsibilities I need to tend to. I've matured, right? What a joke is that? That's a total joke, isn't it? I've matured beyond being able to stay up and listen to you. It's a joke. I remember how I'd buy Teresa gifts I couldn't afford. I would. I'd buy her gifts that were irresponsible. I'm not saying go out and get in lots of debt buying gifts that are irresponsible. That's not what I'm saying. But I would. 
Now I consider that irresponsible and immature also. I mean, she's like, hey, can we get this thing? And I'm like, oh, we can't afford that. And I can't buy you anything anymore. I can't afford anything now. It's just like my giving to the church or missions or the poor. Right? I need to give what I'm able, but no more. I mean, it would be irresponsible to give more than I'm able, like the church of Macedonia, who Paul commends in 2 Corinthians 8, wouldn't it? I seem to kind of act like this. You see, here, and here's kind of the thing I think. This is what goes in my head. You see, I've matured as a husband and as a Christian. Those new Christians, you know, the ones who are all passionate about Jesus and all excited and reckless. They're irresponsibly pursuing him, coming to church every chance they get, giving more money they can afford to give to missions of the poor, singing worship songs louder than we think is socially acceptable, declaring Jesus to everyone they know, no matter how clumsily they do it. You know, they'll mature and grow out of that. You know how I know that? Because I did. What a pathetic, passionless, and loveless Christianity it is we've matured into. I, I'm telling you, I think we need to be reckless and irresponsible again. Let's give more than we're able and sing louder than we should and serve more than we have time for and read our Bibles as if it's really our food and drink. Let's pray with a fervency and frequency that makes our world think we're peculiar. Proclaim Christ to everyone, no matter how clumsily we do it, no matter how well we think we're able to do that or not. In other words, let's follow Jesus's command for the church. What is his command? Look at Revelation 2, 5. Look at verse 5. What does he tell him? You've abandoned your first love. What's the responsibility? 2, 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Hear that? We call it maturity. Jesus calls it fallenness. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Repent and do the works you did at first. We need to turn from our tendency toward cold, dead orthodoxy and get on our faces before the Lord. What do we need to do? We must return to the love we had at first. Look, we don't have to change our commitment to doctrine or to hating evil. That should continue. We just need to do so because of our passion for Jesus. That's why we do it. We need to renew our love for Jesus. And while you're at it, men, <laughs> renew your passionate love for your wife. Okay, why? Because God commands you to. Start pursuing her like you did it first. And we need to do the same thing with the Lord. Let's be the peculiar, radical, reckless lovers of Jesus, our wives and our children, and of others that we're called to be. Let's be that. Why shouldn't we? Who cares what anybody thinks? As long as when Jesus looks at us, he doesn't say to us, I know your works. Here's some good things about you. But you know what? You forgot me. You forgot your first love. 
So what happens if we don't repent and do what we did at first? What happens if you all, hearing this word, feeling convicted, walk away from here and do nothing about it? What happens if this is true of our church and we don't constantly repent? What happens? Look at 2.5 again. Next part of it. If not, if you don't repent and do the works you did at first, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In other words, the one who is in our midst, who walks among the lampstands, will pick up our lampstand and remove it. Hear what Jesus is saying to Ephesus? Why does Jesus tell them of all of the descriptions of himself? Why does Jesus give the church at Ephesus a description that he is the one who walks among the seven lampstands? Because a lampstand, first of all, is what proclaims the light of the glory of Christ or the gospel, of the glory of Christ to the world. That is the responsibility of the church. And therefore, the lampstand represents the church. And Jesus says, I'm in your midst. And I have you in my right hand. And if you don't repent, I will snuff you out. Your church will end. Do you hear that? Now, I'm not saying we're on the verge of having our lampstand removed. In fact, I don't think we're anywhere near having our lampstand removed at this point. But I, I could just be underestimating our sin, huh? That's possible. I'm not saying we as a church are Ephesus. It's not what I'm saying. I am saying we could become Ephesus if we don't heed this warning. I am saying that some of us in this room right now are or might as well be a part of the church of Ephesus. So what does he promise the church if we listen? If we hear and overcome, what does he promise us? What does he commit to us? Look at chapter two, verse seven. First says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, that's the overcomer. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Who's the one who conquers or overcomes in Scripture? You know who it is? It's the believer. Real believers overcome. False believers or professors of faith only do not overcome. Their love for Jesus grows cold and, it's be, and it eventually is shown to have been never really a true love for Jesus. If you want to read more about that, go read Matthew 13, the parable of the soils or of the sower. They're excited about Jesus. Things happen. They lose a passion for him. Yeah, I believe. I went forward. I prayed the prayer. I read that tract and I did that thing at the end of it that it said to do. I started going. I was excited. I died off. I don't believe anymore. I walked away and I continue in that until my death. And they go to their death and they stand before the Lord and they say, didn't I do this? And didn't I do that? And didn't I do this? And Jesus looks at him and says, depart from me for I never knew you. 
John says it this way. They went out from um, they went out from us, but they were never of us. Never really believers in the first place. Those who really know Christ, those who have been changed by the Spirit of God, are a new creation, and the Spirit indwells them. And you know what the Spirit promises to do? He promises to sanctify them. He promises to do that. In other words, the same gospel that saved you will sanctify you. That's his promise if you're a believer. Jesus makes a commitment to the church, to those who overcome that they will experience an eternal life in a renewed heavens and earth. See this whole description here where he says you will eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God is taken out of the last part of Revelation in chapter 21. 22, etc. When John describes the new heavens and the new earth, what it is like when Jesus returns and restores the earth to what he intended it to be and in which he rules and reigns. And this is part of that description. We'll get to have what was supposed to be ours in the garden before the fall. Do you hear that? You'll get to eat from the tree of life. Where was that? That's in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? And prior to the fall, they had the promise that they could eat of that tree. And they blew it. And so they didn't get to, right? They were tossed out. They were no longer allowed to eat from that tree. And he says to him, you know what? If you overcome, you'll eat from that tree. Because it will be in the paradise of God. It's the renewed heavens and earth. Look, there's something here that as Christians, we believe that the world thinks is complete and utter foolishness. And that's that Jesus Christ, that man who walked among men, lived a perfect life in our place, went to the cross and paid a penalty that was due us. In other words, God's wrath was poured out on Christ in our place. He was substituted for us. And then that Christ conquered the grave and rose again. So that those of us who believe, those of us who believe, we would not only be forgiven for our sins, but we would be declared righteous as if we lived Jesus' life. If you ever get tired of hearing that, you don't understand it. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we would experience the age of the spirit. In other words, the spirit of God would indwell us and make us a new creation. Do something that is so radically different than he ever did before in indwelling his people. And we would live in that time. If we believe him, we would live that way as members of his kingdom, although his kingdom has not yet fully arrived. And you know what else? We say that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and that he has authority over all heaven and earth. That same man. And he's ruling it. And you know what we tell people? That one day he'll return and he will conquer all evil fully and finally. 
it will be removed. And his believers will live with him in the state they were intended to for eternity. Look to the world. That's crazy. Absolutely. I mean, we are, we're not just half baked. We're fully baked. We're gone, aren't we? Fools for Christ in that sense. But that's what we believe. That's the Jesus that we love. And if the Jesus that we love or profess to love is that guy, the Lord of the universe who sits on his throne, ruling and reigning sovereignly over all of history of man, over everything that we do, over this church, over your life, if that's really the Jesus we profess to love, then how can we do anything less than be radical and reckless and irresponsible about our love for him? Anything less. How can we do that? Let's love him. Let me pray. Lord, I, I recognize, Jesus, that I so often, so often wane in my love for you. I'm so self-consumed, so focused on what I can see in the world around me. that I do not see you as my treasure. And Lord, that I do not love you as I should. I repent of that. Lord, I pray for our church that we would be a church that stands for truth and right doctrine in the face of persecution and suffering, in the face of ridicule, Lord, that we don't tolerate sin or evil in our midst, but we hate it. And Lord, that we love those around us enough to address what we hate in them because you hate that in them and you want to see it removed and repented of. And Lord, at the same time, I pray that we would just have a passionate, abiding love for you that we would not get so caught up in right doctrine that we would forget the God whom it is describing and that we would love you with passionate, abiding, reckless, irresponsible love. You are worthy of no less than that. In Jesus' name, amen.